Father, we do want you to speak to us. We want to hear from you. We want our hearts to be stirred by your word. Father, I have in mind those who are in this room who may be like Nicodemus, who know the Bible, who have sat under its teaching, who may fancy themselves somewhat of an expert in the things of God. For all of those who are like that and yet who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes to be able to believe in the scriptures and to hear your truth. So for those whose consciences aren't afflicted that need to be afflicted, I pray that you would do it. Lord, I also think of those in this room whose consciences are so tender and they worry so much about whether or not they are really saved, but they have that little mustard seed of faith that you've given them. I pray that you would cause that faith to grow and that they would see the evidences of the new birth in their life and of your hand in their life and that you would cause them to be strong and mighty in faith. So for these things and all the other things that I don't even know to ask for, I pray that you would do it in your people. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain, and establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was nine years old, I asked for a new bicycle for Christmas. And I had in mind a pretty clear view of what I wanted. I um, had an old bike that was in need of an upgrade. In fact, at that point, I don't think I'd ever even owned a new bike. I think that they were all hand-me-downs or used ones up until that point. But what I wanted for Christmas was a dirt bike. Um, I wanted a bike that had, if you know what I'm talking about, how the handlebars go up like this and there's a little bar that goes across the top. I wanted one like that. Uh, I wanted one that was, didn't have a big banana seat. I had a big banana seat on my bike. I wanted the little normal bike seat that would be on like a BMX bike. And I wanted mag wheels, not, not spokes in, in my wheels. So I wanted a bike like they rode in the movie E.T. If you ever saw the movie E.T. where they did the, the guy, little kids go off running from the cops, that's what I wanted. So when Christmas morning finally came around, I was in great expectation. We came into the room where the Christmas tree was to look at our presents. But as we walked in, there was no bike there, but there was the sound of sleigh bells and somebody yelling ho, ho, ho outside. And it turns out that... Um, you know, my parents had set up this whole thing so that um, there would be this big reveal of the gift that they were giving me. So um, I go outside because all the adults say, hey, there sounds like Santa Claus is outside. And so I, it's probably Uncle So-and-so doing it. But I, I, run out, I run out to the carport, and there's no Santa Claus. I just missed him. Um, but there was um, this brand-new bike that was sitting there. And the whole thing was very exciting except for one thing. It wasn't a dirt bike. It was not the bike I had asked for at all. It was this cowboy themed bike. 
It did not have a BMX frame. It had an old-timey kind of cruiser frame. It didn't have a racing seat. It had another banana seat on it. It didn't have the BMX handlebars. It had the bad handlebars that I didn't want. So it was just a newer version of what I already had with a cowboy-themed paint job and rawhide printed on it. So here's the thing, though. I knew my folks were really excited that I was getting that bike and they were going to be able to give it to me. They were super excited about giving me a new bike, and, and I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so I did my nine-year-old best to act happy about the new bike. But I found out years later, and this is the sad part, um, I didn't hide my true feelings very well. My mom and dad could tell very, pretty clearly that I, I was disappointed with, with the gift. And they could also tell that I was trying to hide my disappointment for their sake. And so if they were feeling low about having you know, botched the gift, they were feeling even worse that they could tell that I was trying to act like that I, I liked it um, for their sake. So we didn't have a lot of money, and they had put a lot of money, and of course they had put all their love into getting me that bike, a bike that in the end I couldn't make myself like, even though I was, I was trying to do that. Uh, the best I could do was to, to pretend to like it. What can you do when you don't appreciate what you ought to appreciate? And what can you do when you don't love what you ought to love. When what is supposed to make your heart sore just leaves you kind of cold. What if the thing that you ought to love and appreciate isn't merely a bicycle, but is merely God himself? Did you know that the human condition has been so corrupted by sin that apart from grace, not a single one of us would give a fig about God about the cross, about the Bible, about the resurrection, about judgment, about eternal life. The Bible says that apart from grace, all of those spiritual realities, those ultimate realities, would be foolishness to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You cannot, in and of yourself, apart from grace, assess the value of the things of God. That's the human condition, and it really is desperate. We are corrupted by sin and headed for damnation, and yet we don't have it in us to seek out or even to want the salvation that God has provided. Think about that. Left to ourselves, we open the Bible or we hear the gospel and it just leaves us cold and indifferent. And we can make ourselves, we can't make ourselves want it any more than I could have made myself want that bike. So what does God do to address the fact that we are so broken that we don't even want what he spent all his love to provide for us? That's the question really that Jesus is trying to get at and answering for us in his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. And we're going to pick up where we left off last time, which is in verse 6. You'll remember that John tells us at the end of chapter 2 that 
People were seeing Jesus' signs and they were believing in him, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. They had faith, but it turned out to be a false faith because even though they were seeing the signs that he was performing, they weren't trusting in what the signs were signifying. There was something broken inside of them that kept them from seeing the full truth about Jesus. And then, right after all of that, at the end of chapter 2, there's this guy who comes to Jesus at night, Nicodemus. He's an exemplar of the darkness that we just saw at the end of chapter 2 in those people. Nicodemus, we find out, sees Jesus, but he's not really seeing Jesus for who he is. He sees that he's a teacher who has come from God, but he doesn't confess Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he's never going to see or embrace him as Messiah unless he is born again. Unless Nicodemus is given new life by the Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of God, nor will he enter the kingdom of God. And that's what we looked at last time. And so Nicodemus, we saw, was clearly confused by all of this. And so he asks in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You remember all of that? And so he's totally confused and in the dark about this. The man who came to Jesus in the dark is in the dark himself. And so Jesus begins explaining in clear terms exactly what the new birth is all about. And I want us to look and consider Jesus' Jesus's explanation of the new birth in three steps. And the first one is this, the explanation of the new birth in verses 6 through 8, the confusion about the new birth in verses 9 to 12, and then the point of the new birth in verses 13 through 15. So the explanation of the new birth the confusion about the new birth and the point of the new birth. And the first one is the explanation of the new birth right there in verse 6. So please look with me at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now remember, in verse 5, Jesus has just told Nicodemus that he must be born of the water and of the spirit if he wishes to enter into the kingdom of God. To be born of the water and of the spirit does not refer to physical birth versus spiritual birth, nor does it refer to baptism in the water versus baptism in the spirit. On the contrary, I think that expression, to be born of the water and of the spirit, likely is hearkening back to the prophecy in Ezekiel. We looked at this last time, but you'll remember in Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Did you catch that last part? I'm going to put my spirit within you. You're going to have a new heart because of the spirit within you. And it's going to cause you to walk in obedience. So the sprinkling of water signifies cleansing from sin brought about by the Spirit. I think this is what Jesus is picking up on. Ezekiel's prophesying about the water and the Spirit. Now Jesus is talking about being born of the water and of the Spirit. And so Jesus picks up on this imagery in verse 5 such that being born of water and Spirit likely refers to the same reality. New birth by the Spirit of God. The new birth brings life where there was no life before. It works on your heart so that you no longer are at war 
with the things of God, but you actually develop a taste for the things of God, and it enables you to see the value and worth in the things that you previously were indifferent about, or, or perhaps were even at war with. It enables you to see Jesus for who he is and then to believe in him. But it not only changes your heart, it also changes your deeds. Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So it's a supernatural renewal of the spirit that begins on the inside in your heart and that works its way out into your life. So that you have a life of faith and of love and a host of other virtues. And then that brings us to verse 6. Where Jesus tells us that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is Jesus explaining further what it means to be born again. What it means to be born of the water and of the spirit. And so he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In John's gospel the word flesh uh, doesn't mean precisely the same thing that you see, uh, uh, the, the same thing that it is in Paul's writings. You know how Paul talks about the spirit and the flesh um, uh, numerous times throughout his writings. In Paul's letters, he's, he's re- routinely using that term flesh to refer to our sinful nature. I don't think that's what's going on here. I, I don't think that that's what the term means necessarily in, t- in John's gospel. How do we know that? Well, we saw in chapter 1, in verse 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Does that mean that the Word became a sinful nature? No. Flesh does not mean sinful nature per se. It's not what he's trying to say there. The word flesh in this context simply refers to the fact that Jesus took on a human nature. So to say that the word became flesh is to say that the eternal son of God took on a human nature at the incarnation. And so back at chapter 3 and verse 6, when Jesus says that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, I think he means to say like produces like. He's trying to say what human nature produces human nature. Oranges come from orange trees. Apples come from apple trees. Lion cubs come from lions. Human beings are born to other human beings. Like produces like. This is something that we all learn just by observing the world. It's one of the laws of nature that we see in all of our experience. A human couple can reproduce children that share their human nature, but a human couple cannot by themselves give birth to a child that is filled with the Holy Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, which means that only the Holy Spirit can give birth to regenerate, spirit-filled human beings. The new birth requires not any kind of human agency, but divine agency through the Spirit. Without that divine agency, a person remains in darkness. That's what you have to have first before any other agency is involved. And so Jesus says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, Nicodemus, you know this principle of like produces like. Everybody knows this. Children knows this. It should be no surprise that I'm telling you that your physical birth doesn't endow you with the ability to see or to enter the kingdom of God. You have to have the spirit to enter the kingdom. 
So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. But then he says this in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there, there's a piece of this verse that gets a little bit lost in translation. There's one word for, in Greek, in Koine Greek, there's one word for spirit and for wind. And it's this word pneuma, okay? We get our word uh, pneumatic fever, right, for, from that. But pneuma is, is the word. And so context determines whether or not the author intends for us to think spirit or to think wind. It's the same thing in Hebrew, right? We, ruach. Um, it's just spirit and wind, one word. Um, so you've got to look at context to know what the author's intended meaning is here. And it's clear that in the first part of the verse, he means wind, I think. But in the second part of the verse, he means spirit. But the original readers, this is the part that's lost, they would have heard <clears throat> this play on the word, pneuma. They would have heard, and I'm, this is going to be clumsy, but they would have heard something like the pneuma, pneuma is where it wishes, so it is with everyone born of the pneuma. You see what I'm getting at? <clears throat> the wind blows where it wishes, um, so it is with everyone who is born by the Spirit, which means that Jesus is making a really tight comparison between the spirit and the wind. In what way, this is what you're supposed to be thinking then, in what way does the spirit resemble the wind? <clears throat> Jesus highlights two things. First of all, Jesus says that the wind blows where it wishes and that we do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So think about how the wind moves. Do we control the movement of the wind? Can we tell the wind when and where it's supposed to blow and how fast it's supposed to blow? No, it blows where it wishes, not where we wish. As if it's moving of its own agency, not according to what we would have it do. We cannot control, manipulate the move, control or manipulate the movements of the Spirit. That's what he's getting at. The Spirit blows into people's hearts according to what the Spirit wishes not according to our plans. You know, he already, you remember this from John chapter 1 in verse 13. Remember where it says, all of those who received him, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John has said in every way that he knows how that neither ordinary physical descent from Abraham, nor physical descent from anyone, nor because of anybody's agency, are they born again. It doesn't make you into a child of God. They have to be born of God, it said there in chapter 1, because like produces like. It's God's agency, not our agency, that's decisive, which means that we cannot control the Spirit. He will blow where He wishes. He moves according to the sovereign will of God. All we can do is to observe this and to rejoice in, in these movements. But we can't control these things or manipulate these things. <clears throat> what else does the Spirit does the Spirit have in common with the wind? Well, you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. You can't see the wind itself, but you can hear it, right? In other words, you can't see the, the wind blowing, but you can perceive the sound it produces. You can't see the wind, but you can see the leaves rustling in the trees. You can feel the breeze 
on your skin, but you can't see the wind itself. Likewise, you can't see the spirit. Spirit's invisible. But you can see the spirit's effects. When the spirit lands in a person's life, the spirit has an effect. We, we already saw this in Ezekiel's prophecy, that the spirit gives us a new heart and enables us to walk in obedience to God's commands. That's the effect. But John, the writer of this gospel elsewhere, is even more expansive than Ezekiel in describing the invisible spirit's visible effects in a person's life once they taste the new birth. In, 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 his, in, in fact, in 1 John, John gives us five evidences of the new birth. Five evidences, evidences that should be in every single believer's life in some measure. So you can use that, you can test yourself on this. Every person who is born of God will have these five characteristics in some measure in their life. So I'm just going to, I don't want you to turn there. I'm just going to read you these verses and then walk you through these. But if you're born of God, everyone who's born of God, first of all, believes that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So you, you have to ask yourself, have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? Do you believe in the Christ of the Bible or do you believe in the Christ of your own imagination? The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of being born of God is that you believe in the Christ of the Bible. If you're trusting in Christ as the dying lamb and the risen Lord who saves you from your sins, you can be sure that's not because you were just smarter than your neighbor that you decided to believe that. You can be sure that is a consequence of the new birth in your life. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Second thing is, if you're born of God, you don't practice sin. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This does not mean perfection in your life, but it does mean a new direction in your life. None of us is going to be perfect on, on this side of glory, but this text is saying that the born-again person has the ability through the Spirit to hate his sin and to repent of it. But if you're a person who can sin with impunity, with no conviction, no grief, no repentance in your life, that could be a sign that you haven't been born again. Because the new birth produces repentance of sin. You don't just keep walking in sin happily. Third thing, the new birth, everyone who's born of God practices righteousness. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So not only do you refrain from sin, you also walk in obedience to God's commands. If you have the spirit, you aren't indifferent anymore to God's words and his instructions for your life. You love his word and you learn to love to walk in obedience. If that kind of righteousness has no part in your life, it may be because you haven't been born again. Because if you have the spirit, you're going to bear the fruit of the spirit. You remember that? Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness. He, he's saying the same thing Jesus is saying here, that the Spirit gives birth to certain realities in your life. Fourth thing, if everyone who's born of God has faith that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4. 
for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, that doesn't mean that you have a perfect faith. After all, we remember the man who prayed to Jesus in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. Here's a guy whose faith Jesus recognized, and here's a guy who had weak faith. I believe, help my unbelief. So that tells us it doesn't take a great faith to be saved. It just takes mustard seed faith, like Jesus says in Matthew 17 and Luke 17. So you're not saved by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of the one you put your faith in. So the faith that overcomes the world is not necessarily a great faith. It can be a mustard seed faith, but it must be a persevering faith. In whatever measure you have faith, that faith comes from the, from the new birth and it perseveres. It doesn't fall away. Fifth thing, everybody who's born of God loves others. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So love is the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the rest. Jesus says that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, that's in John 13. Here's the question. Are you able to love your enemies? Jesus says that we're supposed to love them. Are you able to love your neighbor? He says we're supposed to love them too. Are you able to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, Jesus says you're supposed to love them above all. It says that this kind of, Jesus says this kind of love is the fruit of the new birth. If you're not loving like that, it may be because you haven't been born again. So here's the thing. As we're, talk, as we're looking at Jesus' explanation of the new birth, he says that you're going to not be able to see the Spirit, but you're going to be able to hear the sound of it. You're not going to be able to see it, but you're going to be able to tell, discern effects of the Spirit. So test yourself here. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you practice sin? No repentance involved, no regret. Do you practice righteousness? Do you have faith that overcomes the world? Do you love others? Th these are the fruits of the new birth according to, to John. And it's the question that we all have to come to terms with. Are these evidences in our lives? So Jesus explains the new birth in verses six through eight, but secondly, he addresses this confusion about the new birth beginning in verse nine. So please look at verse nine. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Like produces like. Um, how can these things be? Now, the way that I think you should understand Nicodemus' question is that there is a tone of incredulity here. Like, it's, he's not just misunderstanding, he's kind of not believing, okay? He, he's just not following along here. Here's a guy who's been taught his whole life and who has taught others, as a Pharisee, that bringing in the kingdom of God requires legal obedience, and now he's got this guy, Jesus, in front of him telling him, no, it's not your legal obedience that is the primary issue. It's your unconverted heart that's the main issue. It's your need for the new birth. 
unless you are born of the Spirit, you won't see the kingdom. There will be no kingdom ushered into your life if, if you're not born again. So what's a Pharisee like Nicodemus supposed to do with that? What about keeping the law, Jesus? What about the traditions, Jesus? Are you really saying that participation in the kingdom relies on this mysterious work of the Spirit, not on our legal obedience? How, on the, how can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's acknowledging the fact that Nicodemus is an expert in the law of God. He's a teacher of Israel. This guy knows scripture. He's a professional student of scripture and a teacher of God's people. And yet, Nicodemus cannot see the kingdom of God, even when the king is sitting right in front of him. If anyone should be able to see the kingdom of God, to discern the kingdom of God when it appears, it should be the guy who's an expert in what God has revealed in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. If anybody should be able to see it, that kind of a person should see it. Jesus is giving him really rudimentary stuff here. And it's still bewildering to this vaunted expert in the law. Shouldn't an expert in the law be able to know things like Jeremiah 31? Which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, how in the world is God going to write on people's hearts? Well, he's not going to do it with a pen. He's going to do it with the Spirit. Should a teacher of Israel have been able to figure that out? Especially since he also had Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19. I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. See that coming of the spirit, obedience flowing from the presence of the spirit in the lives of God's people. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Should Nicodemus maybe as an expert in the scripture, been able to have discerned something from that? Or what about the valley of the dry bones, which we had read in the Old Testament scripture reading in Ezekiel 37, where God gives a parable of dried out corpses raised to new life. And then he says, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. What about this one from the law of Moses? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. These aren't obscure texts. These are right in the mainstream of what a Pharisee should know. And yet here's Nicodemus with a Bible in his hand and he's confused and perplexed when Jesus talks about being born of the water and of the spirit he should have known his eyes should have been open to this but they're closed to this so verse 11 jesus says truly truly i say to you we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony now something interesting is happening here in the original that's difficult to see in English. 
In verse 11, Jesus begins using first and second person plural expressions. So he goes from talking about I and you, singular, to we and y'all, plural, at this point. So that raises a question. Who is he referring to when he says we, plural, and who is he referring to when he says y'all, plural? But who is this we that he's talking about? Now, I think the y'all is pretty clear. It's you, Nicodemus, and all who are in your position, all that you stand for, all the people like at the end of chapter 2, okay? I think that's what he's referring to there. But who's, the, who's this plural we? Well, Jesus uses the first person plural on three other occasions in John's gospel. Once he uses it to refer to we Jews, chapter 4, verse 22, we Jews worship what we know. Once when he's referring to himself and his disciples in chapter 9 and verse 4, when he says we must do the works of him who sent me. And then again, when he's praying to his father in John chapter 17, he prays that his disciples might be one as, quote, we are one. So the we there is referring to him and his father. Which of those is most likely perhaps here in John 3.11? I don't think it would make any sense for him to be talking about we Jews uh, since Nicodemus is a Jew and clearly doesn't know. Okay, He says, we speak of that which we know, bear witness to what we have seen, and, and Nicodemus is a Jew and he's not known or seen. I don't think that makes sense. Nor does it make sense for him to be speaking of himself along with his disciples. They're not even a part of this conversation with Nicodemus. I think the most likely explanation is that Jesus is referring to himself and to his father. This tracks with the fact that Jesus repeatedly emphasizes that he only speaks what his father commands him to say. So John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. John 12, verse 49, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 14, 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. John 15, 15, all the things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus is referring over and over to the fact that his words are his Father's words. He's just referred obliquely to the fact that Nicodemus is an expert in the scriptures, so God's testimony in the Old Testament. And now he's talking about his own testimony as he teaches about the new birth. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. I think he's talking about what he and his father have seen and have borne witness to. Which means heaven has spoken, and yet of this teacher of Israel, Jesus says, but you do not receive our testimony, which means you don't receive the word of God. And so verse 12, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I think earthly things here probably refers to the things of this fallen age versus the heavenly things, which are the things of the age to come or maybe of heaven itself. In any case, a part of this age of earthly things is the new birth. Clearly, Nicodemus doesn't understand the new birth. If Nicodemus can't even understand the new birth, how will he understand the other glories that Jesus is privy to and that he might disclose to him? If you're unregenerate and don't have eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to accept the things of the Spirit of God, do you think that that might lead to a chain reaction of misunderstandings 
about God and his ways. You better believe it does. That darkness snowballs and you build out entire belief systems and worldviews that are essentially just layers of error after error after error, all premised on the fundamental error of rejecting God's revelation. You ever wonder why Paul says things like, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Futile speculations, that's Romans 1, futile speculations and errors snowball into large speculations and large errors. And before you know it, you are so far down the road of error that you can't even see your way back. That's where Nicodemus is. And he's done it as a scholar of the Bible. You can get this way while reading the Bible. He's reading the Bible, but his mind has been so captured by sin and worldliness that he's so far down the road of error, he can't see his way back. But now he's sitting before the one who speaks of what he knows and of what he has seen. The question is, how is he going to respond to this one who's giving him the true light? Will he continue in the error or will his eyes open to the blazing glory of revelation that's sitting right before him? That's really the question for all of us. What will we do when we come into contact with a revelation that confronts all of our foolish speculations? What will we do when the light of Jesus threatens all the little ingenious worldviews that we've built for ourselves to justify our existence apart from our creator? What will we do when Jesus shines the light on our misunderstandings? Are we going to persist in the darkness? Kick against the goads? If we continue to kick against the goads, that is the sign that the new birth hasn't happened yet. But when we see the light as light and receive it, that is the evidence of the new birth. That the new birth has come into a person's life. And that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is shed abroad in somebody's heart. So he talks about the explanation of the new birth, the confusion about the new birth, and then finally, the point of the new birth. And the point of the new birth is, is going to be faith. Faith in what God sent his son to do for us. Please look with me at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus has just said in verse 11 that he speaks of that which he knows and he bears witness to what he has seen. And it brings to mind, I think, this whole conversation at this point brings to mind what John says in the prologue, okay? So Jesus speaks of that which he knows and of what he's experienced. Now he's saying, no one's ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. But do you remember that part from the prologue where John says in chapter 1, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is not getting his info about the glories of the Father secondhand or thirdhand. 
He is a witness of the glories because he, as the eternal son of God, he's a participant in the glories. He has been in the bosom of the father. No one else has ascended into heaven in the same way that Jesus has. No one. And there was a raft of Jewish speculation in the first century about Moses and others who may have been caught up into heaven in some way. Jesus is saying, there's no one else like me. I've seen the glories. I am the glory. Indeed, he names himself as the son of man, which is that heavenly figure. You'll remember in Daniel chapter seven and verse 13, who appears as a person, but who nevertheless stands in the presence of the ancient of days. Only the son of man who stands in the presence of the ancient of days in Daniel's vision has that kind of access to the heavenly mysteries. And Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. That was me all along. But this son of man doesn't stay in heaven, according to verse 13. It says, he descended from heaven, having been sent by his father on a special mission. What's that mission? Well, verse 14 has it. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus came from heaven to earth on a mission from his Father to save sinners. And now he's describing it in terms that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus. He's recalling the story you all remember from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, they began complaining about the journey and the food, and they speak against Moses, and they speak against God. And so the Lord sends these fiery serpents into the camp as a judgment, and guess what? People start dying because they're getting bit by these fiery serpents. They're dying right and left, and it's a judgment from God. And so Moses steps forward, he intercedes for the people, and the Lord tells Moses how to save the people from this judgment, from the serpents. He tells them to fashion a serpent and put it on a post. And so Moses, Moses fashions a serpent from bronze, he puts it on this standard, this pole, and he raises it up, and God tells them that whenever anyone is bitten, all they need to do is to look up at that standard, to look up at that serpent on the post, and they'll be healed. They'll be saved. Jesus is saying here that he is that bronze serpent. Just like that bronze serpent was raised up on a stick to provide salvation for Israel, so he's going to be raised up on a stick to bring eternal life to everyone who believes in him. He's predicting his death on the cross. Notice there in Numbers that looking at the bronze serpent doesn't keep them from getting bit. It only works to save them after they have already been bitten. This is really important because we are in the exact same position. Whether you realize it or not, you have already been bitten and the poison is already running through your veins. You are already under judgment and on your way to death right out of the box when you're born. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You will die. You will stand before your maker to give an account and you will face judgment. What are you going to do if you show up at the judgment burdened underneath the weight of your sin and guilt? How will you avoid the wrathful judgment of God 
in that moment. How will it happen? You have already been bitten. You are already on your way to destruction apart from grace. How can you avoid it? The only way to be saved is to look up to the Son of Man who has been raised up on a standard for you. To look at him in faith and to trust him that he's done everything that needs to be done to save you. God has poured out all of his love at the cost of the life of his very own son in order to save you. And the key question is, is what are you going to do when you come into confrontation with Jesus raised up on the cross? The real test of the new birth in your own heart is whether you will look on him and believe or look on him and turn away with indifference. That's the real test. When I think about that bike that I asked for for Christmas, now, it doesn't leave me cold anymore. Why? Well, as a child, all I could see was my disappointment with a gift. As a man with my own children and who has learned a little something about pouring all my love into a Christmas gift, my heart no longer fixates on an immature disappointment with a gift. My heart soars when I think about the love of the givers. That's what I think about now when I think about my parents. They have given me an inheritance of love and of faith and of goodness. And that bike, as I think about it now, is an emblem of all of that for me. But guess what? I had to grow up to see it. I had to let years and experience transform my perspective I have been so transformed over the years that that old bike means more to me than they will ever know. So much that I've searched the internet trying to find pictures of it. I'd do anything to have it back. The new birth is like that. Except that the new birth doesn't work like that slow burn, years long of growth that happens over a lifetime. The new birth transforms your perspective immediately. God takes your cold and dead heart, your disinterest in the things of God, and he transforms you in an instant so that what used to leave you cold now makes your heart explode with love and thankfulness and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth. And that's why Jesus says to Nicodemus and he says to us, unless you are born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Father, I pray for all of those who are here who are not born again, that they would be impacted by your word such that you would cause faith to bloom in their hearts. Lord, would you cause them to repent and to believe in the gospel, to believe in Christ who was crucified and raised for us. Father, would you use this word about the new birth to cause the new birth? and the unregenerate in this room. Father, would you also use this word to strengthen your people, that even those who are weak in faith and struggling, feeling like they're holding on by a thin thread, that they would understand that that thin thread of faith is like a mountain of steel because they're connected to Jesus. So fill your people with joy and love and hope and assurance in the Holy Spirit.
because of this word. And I pray you do all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.